Today, we're traveling to the hub of weed farming in California, a little area in the northern part of the state that's known as the Emerald Triangle. We're on a one-lane back road that runs through a forest of massive redwoods. And if you can't tell from the tape, my producer Steve and I are pretty excited to see some giant trees. Wow. Look at this. We're going on like a bridge over uh, over the river here, way up high, um, amongst some really just insane trees. Like to call the trees around my house a tree. What we're more excited about, though, is the purpose of this little road trip. We're on our way to visit a nursery. It's open, but it almost went bankrupt as it tried to follow California's cannabis laws. Here we are. Looks like a nursery, but those are cannabis plants. And this is bamboo over here. I think this is okay. I'll see if he wants me to move the car. There's a small dirt parking lot. It holds maybe, you know, 10 cars. So we park and get out. And all of these rows of cannabis plants are just right there. Some are short, little baby plants in tiny little pots. Others are like towering, probably more than six feet tall. Some are in a shaded greenhouse area, and some are sitting out in the bright sun. It's just like any other nursery. It's just that everything is green. No flowers. Well, yeah, I don't know if I've ever been like this close to so many cannabis plants. Well, yeah, I don't think it's I like, have either. I think there's like 15. It's like a just a forest of plants here. We collect ourselves and head in to meet the owner of this place, the guy we came to see. Uh, my name is Michael Jacobel. I'm the owner of Plant Humboldt Cannabis Nursery here in Humboldt County, California. Michael's grown weed here for years, and now his whole nursery is dedicated to it. He grows and sells young cannabis plants to local farmers or anyone who stops by with an itch to grow some weed in their backyard. It hasn't always been, but these days, it's all legal. Since I could do this illegally, and we moved everything out into the open here, I haven't sold a single plant off the books. You know, even when I could have, when nobody was watching, we didn't. We just. But it wasn't an easy road. Though his operation is small and pretty straightforward, Michael's had to navigate through a maze of regulations. The rules Michael had to follow to get the licenses he needed were insanely complicated. And making sure he was on top of all of them was really expensive. And he's not alone. The Emerald Triangle is in major flux now that the state has gone legal. Families that have been growing weed for decades face a major decision of whether to go legit or stay in what they call the outlaw market. In the end, Michael almost lost it all over a doghouse. But we'll get to that. Welcome back to Law 360's Legalization. Today, we're taking a look at what cannabis businesses have to do to get legal. Specifically, we're talking about how the recreational marijuana laws of one state, California, actually work when the industry tries to follow them. I'm Diana Novak-Jones. Now, 
California is obviously not the only state to have legalized recreational marijuana, or the only state that's worked and reworked its regulations. But it's the biggest legal cannabis market in the world right now. And it already had a history with marijuana long before it legalized recreational pot. So California is maybe the most extreme example of how hard it is for both businesses and state governments as they create a legal cannabis industry. After California's recreational marijuana laws went into effect last year, Michael set out to make his business legal. When you drive up, Michael's nursery isn't that different from a normal one. Customers come out and walk up and down the rows of plant varieties. They pick out their plants, pay for them, and go home. Because it's marijuana, these customers have to be of age to buy their plants, and state law puts a limit on how many they can take. But that's just the start of the regulations Michael has to contend with. Turns out, Michael needs three different licenses. And getting all three wasn't easy or cheap. As a grower, he needs a cultivation license. And he got it. He also needs a distributor license, just so he can get to the next step, selling the plants. He got that license, too. So he got ready for the season. He planted about 30,000 plants. He still needed that last license, though, a retail license from California's Bureau of Cannabis Control. But then one thing tripped him up. All the plants are outside. And under the Bureau's rules, they need to be stored indoors for the time between when they are chosen by the customer to when he rings them up. In Michael's case, that's just a few minutes. The minute we do this kind of this digital mu musical chairs with a plant, you know, we scan the ID in and it moves into our distribution inventory. Then it's quote unquote delivered to our retail inventory where then we can now sell it, right? On, on paper in the digital pathway there, we can sell it. In that couple minutes that it takes us to do that, that plant is technically in storage and they are very, very specific. There's a very, one line in there, one part of the regulation that says, cannabis goods cannot be stored outdoors. The regulations also have extensive qualifications for how those cannabis goods must be stored. The way Michael understood it, he had to create a separate building to set the plants in for the time between when they were chosen and when they were paid for. So he came up with the doghouse. So we call it the doghouse because it's like if you had a, the biggest St. Bernard you ever could imagine, this would be about the size of the building. I think it's about 50 inches by about 6 feet by about 4 feet high. It's got, um, it's got a big, I'll open it for you here. It's got commercial grade uh, entry door on it. You can open it up. It's about 2 inches thick, so it's layers of plywood laminated together with, you know, solid 2x4s in between. Um, it's got this lock. If you look, it, well, it doesn't have any more because we're not using it, but it used to have a camera inside of it because per regulations, you have to have cameras covering inside and outside of all entrances to the limited access cannabis good storage premises, right? So they made Michael tried sending the plans to the state, but they said they couldn't approve anything ahead of time. So he went ahead and built it. He said he followed the specifications in the regulations, outfitting it with cameras and locks. For those few minutes... The plant would be under lock and key and constant surveillance. 
when a person picked out a plant, they would we put it in there. Well, you know, as soon as we scanned it into our delivery inventory, we put it in there. Now it's quote unquote in storage, right? And then, and then once it was sold, then we could open up the other door and pull it out and give it back to the customer. He was confident it met all the requirements. He sent pictures to the bureau staff that were processing his application for the retail license. He said it took several days to hear back. Then he got an email asking if the doghouse was bolted to the ground. So he sent them photos of the foundation. Then they told him that the doghouse had to be connected to the nursery's retail office. They didn't point to a specific rule on that, and Michael says he'd never heard of that requirement. And they'd never mentioned it before. Meanwhile, Michael's plants were growing on their own schedule. The window for when they were most valuable was closing as they got older and the season passed by. Michael was facing down hundreds of thousands of dollars in debts he racked up to get the nursery operating at the start of the season. And people kept coming to the nursery, asking if Michael would just sell them a few plants off the books. And we had kept having to say, no, 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 we don't have a retail license yet. And we were losing, I don't know, anywhere from, you know, two to $5,000 a day in retail sales. So he scrapped the doghouse altogether. He took a safety ad and bolted it to the ground of the nursery's retail office. He put a plant inside, took a picture, and sent it to the bureau. It had commercial-grade locks, and now it was connected to the office. About 10 days later, just before the 4th of July, Michael got his retail license. The safe didn't fit all the requirements he was trying to meet with the doghouse, but it got approved anyway. We'd have to drill a hole through it and put a camera inside, and we just we didn't do it. Because this is a joke anyway. We're clearly not putting plants in there. We're clearly not. There's no question we're not. And they know we're not. And it's it's this stupid theatrics. It's this, it's this, I refer to it as compliance theater of the absurd. If you're f- familiar with the theater of the absurd genre way back, you know, it's, it's, it's this has almost a sense of like uh, this kind of nihilistic sense of like, this doesn't matter. None of it matters. We all die in the end anyway. This is all just a joke. So let's just, who cares, right? Let's just do this stupid thing. And it's all stupid. And we all know it's stupid, but we'll all just do it and play along. Right. So fine. When we heard about the doghouse and Michael's theater of the absurd licensing drama, we knew it was weird. But is this an outlier example, or are the regulations that are squeezing Michael also posing problems for other cannabis businesses? We talked to some lawyers who work with California marijuana companies as they navigate the licensing process. Naveed Brewster is an attorney with cannabis law firm McAllister Garfield. He works out of the firm's Los Angeles office. He said that Michael's solution is unusual, but his regulatory issues are not. The regulations really, um, you know, wrap their hands around everything your business has to face on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, you, you cough, there's probably, a, there is a reg for that. I mean, you, you know, you've got a, there, there's hygiene requirements for manufacturers, uh, you know, vehicle requirements for distributors. There's, uh, like you mentioned, the badge requirements. Uh, the, the packaging and labeling requirements are, are an area fraught with, uh, with minutia and, and, and specific uh, requirements. So it's, it's really, um, and, and these things have been changing. So it's, it's like it's, it's been a moving target. And each of the three different agencies that oversee cannabis in California set their own regulations. 
Naveed had a client who was manufacturing a marijuana product with a dosage of THC that met the requirements set by California's Department of Public Health. But after they made a bunch, they found out it didn't meet the Bureau of Cannabis Control's dosage rules. More than $100,000 worth of products had to be destroyed. So the regulation, I think, differed by three or four words, and those three or four words caused a, a loss in, in, in the six-figure range for this business, and um, you know it didn't get caught until it was actually an issue with the regulatory compliance testing. So. Um, you know, that was a surprise and it was a little shocking that there wasn't any more, more of an effort, I guess, with the, the regulatory agencies to work together on, on the solution. The other thing is that the regulations are more or less constantly changing. I asked Kimberly Sims, a cannabis attorney with her own firm in San Diego, to describe California's efforts to regulate marijuana in one word. Whiplash. You get thrown back and forth. Think of like a car accident when you just get thrown back and forth all the time. I mean, to me, that's that's what it is. Like, it's regulatory whiplash. They they are changing it so often. I go, well, now it's a, it's a little bit better. But from 2015 to present day, we had so many different iterations of medical regulations, emergency medical regulations, adult use regulations, no emergency, no change to the emergency regulations. Now here's draft permanent, no, now here's another version of those. I mean, it changed so many times and it's still changing and evolving. So, I mean, I guess I, I would use two words, like regulatory whiplash. It, it's, you feel like you're getting thrown around a lot. And every time you think you've solved for X, a new equation comes up because you're going another, you know, another layer into the regulations or compliance. So, I mean, that's the word that I would use. Um, You could also use the word expensive. (laughs) Both Kim and Naveed say the same thing. To operate legally, it takes money. Lots of it. I've seen just on fees, you know, application fees for a city um, running in the $50,000 range, and that's just to apply for, you know, to get your application submitted to the city for them to review it. That doesn't include, you know, the costs of your security company to write a security plan. Um, if you're a cultivator, you know, you're, you're going to need uh, some pretty in-depth diagrams on your, your lights, um, your, your cultivation plan, um, and so on. The more nuanced your plan is, the more complicated it gets. And I and I do think you need someone experienced to shepherd you through that process. It's really helpful to me now as a more experienced practitioner and having done this with the agencies from, you know, from the beginning, which is 2018. But I, I kind of know what a process is going to be like now when I see which analyst has been assigned to us. Michael didn't hire any lawyers for the licensing process. He said it was a struggle but he was glad he saved the money he could have spent on attorneys and consultants. It might have been the difference between going bankrupt and surviving the year. And his retail license came in time for him to stay afloat. He'll make it through this year and can pay off all the debt he racked up getting the plants going and getting his licenses. But what should have been his best year ever is now more like his worst. We asked him if he wishes he'd sold some of his plants under the table. At this point... In retrospect, to be honest, I wish we had. I wish I had said screw it. There's so, there was you know there was probably a hundred thousand dollars in retail sales that we lost to people that I know are not cops, locals. I could have sold them all day long, 
I kind of regret it because they just screwed us over. They do not care. Now, Michael told us he isn't the only grower in Humboldt County who had an internal debate about whether it was worth it to go legal. And plenty of them decided it wasn't. And it's not just Humboldt County where people are opting to stay illegal. In fact, researchers say Californians are buying twice as much illegal pot as they are buying legal. California Governor Gavin Newsom said earlier this year that the problem of illegal cannabis grows is getting worse, not better. Michael did tell us later he would really never have sold an illegal plant. He's not interested in running an illegal business. But he feels positively pushed to the limit by the regulations. What kept me going, there's only one thing that kept me going this year, right, all through spring, spite, pure spite. It got to the point where I was just so depressed about the whole thing, I didn't really care. If they came in and shut us down, I'd be like, oh God, thank you, please, shut us down, I'm done. It's clear licensing is tough. So we wanted to ask the government why it's set up this way and if it might get easier. The Bureau of Cannabis Control would not respond to our requests. But we talked to Kat Packer, who is the executive director of LA's Department of Cannabis Regulation. Before that, she helped shape the state's cannabis regulations as a coordinator with the Drug Policy Alliance. She told us that California's history of medical marijuana and backwoods grows has made it especially difficult to regulate. We have a history uh, and a culture uh, of, of, of cannabis activity here in the state of California, and it's much more difficult for people to transition when they are kind of uh, embedded uh, in, in that culture uh, and, and their behavior. And so it's kind of one thing to change the, the law, um, public opinion has changed, but for people to actually change their day-to-day behavior, I think is going to take much more time and a much more intentional effort. Uh, and in order for that to happen, you have to have uh, diversity of folks across the table, you know, police officers, health professionals, regulators, industry operators, consumers, trying to figure out you know, w- where we actually want this to, to head in the future. But Kat says another complexity comes out of how the cannabis world works. Unlike other industries, cannabis isn't just one thing. It's grows, it's extraction, it's manufacturing, it's retail. And so in California, that's translated to several different agencies overseeing different parts of the industry. And they all have specific things they're looking for. The underlying intention behind these regulations are to try and create better public health and safety outcomes. But I'll be very transparent in saying that many of us regulators are still trying to figure out exactly uh, how best to do that. Uh, and so we're, we're you know, doing our best to share best practices, but many regulators are you know, the first to sit uh, in, in the seat uh, in their office to try and figure this out. So I imagine that over time, and as we continue to receive feedback from industry operators and community members and consumers, uh, our policies will evolve and the regulations will evolve as well. Kat is confident that the licensing process will streamline as everyone gets more experience managing the rules of this new economy. And she says that input from the industry is critical to moving forward. 
But I think that as folks are going through this initial transition, um, most folks are of the opinion that licensing and regulating commercial cannabis activity is a better policy alternative than prohibition, which has never worked. Uh, and so we just have to keep steering towards models uh, that try and allow us to be both responsible and equitable in cannabis policy development. A steady stream of customers came to plant Humboldt to pick out plants while we were there talking to Michael. He's got so many varieties of cannabis growing. Yeah, so vanilla frosting, this is another new Humboldt Seed Company one that smells like, guess what, vanilla frosting. Um, those over there are called Willie G's Lebanese. They're a high CBD variety named after the guy who kind of found it and brought it in, this guy um, named Willie G, who I've never met him, but um, you see him in pictures a lot. Uh, um, lemongrass is, I don't even remember what that is. <laughs> so blueberry muffin, you would not believe what the flowers this smell like. If you can imagine opening an oven in the kitchen and smelling fresh blueberry muffins, it's what, it smells like blueberry muffin. It's, it's really uncanny. I mean, some of these smells that people are able to develop now. And this is a Humboldt Seed Company one. Um, Michael is this repository of Humboldt County cannabis history. He told us story after story of money buried in the woods, people running from their properties as drug-busting helicopters hovered overhead. He's been outspoken online about the difficulties in going legal. And Plant Humboldt has become a place where locals come to talk about how things have changed. It's, it's funny. It's over the last few years, I've had a lot of the old-timers, the people that started this industry, Right, the people, the original back to landers who've been growing for years and years, who hid from the helicopters, who hid their crops, who you know, they, they kept this industry going through all that, and they've come in and bought their six plants for their backyard because that's all they're doing now, and they just said, you know, I looked. I've, this is a story I've heard over and over and over. People have come in and said, yeah. I looked at all the regulations. I thought, great, I want to get permitted. This is what we wanted all along, right? We wanted legalization. We didn't want this to be illegal. And I looked at the stack of regulations, and I looked at the tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars it was going to cost, and I just said, nah. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Law 360 Explores Legalization. Now, if you're keeping track at home, we're halfway through our five-part series. If you've made it this far, we hope you'll join us for our final two episodes. And if you're just listening for the first time, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. We think you'll really enjoy the rest of the series. This episode and the series was written and reported by Diana Novak-Jones. It was produced and mixed by me, Stephen Trader. And our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Now, just a bit of housekeeping here. We actually have one small disclaimer regarding this episode. So back in July, we talked to Naveed Brewster, who was a cannabis attorney at McAllister Garfield at the time. We put the whole show together, and then we found out that Naveed actually changed jobs. He's now corporate counsel and head of compliance at a California cannabis company called Loudpack. So congratulations on the new job, Naveed. All right, now on to our thank yous. So many people at Law360 helped make this possible, including Ann Erda, Ian Toms, and Ed Beeson. 
Also, a special shout out to the National Cannabis Industry Association. Music for the show comes from Elephant, Jeremy Corpus, Freedom Trail Studio, and Norma Rockwell. If you want to know more about the show, please check out our website at law360.com explores. And if you like what you're hearing, please let us know by leaving a review. It helps other people find the show. Thanks.